and you all can have a seat. Good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community on this Cinco de Mayo Sunday morning. So I uh, hope you go get some Mexican after the church is over and uh, celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Uh, I don't know where that came from. Uh, just, hey, that's how we're starting the service. Uh, let me tell you one thing about Grace City is uh, at Grace City, we have a, a vision for who we are, kind of what we want the church to be that we're always be striving toward. And our, our vision for Grace City is this, that every Sunday we would be a church where people experience the love of Christ and join in his redeeming work. That we would always be a church where people experience the love of Christ and join in his redeeming work. We believe that, that when we gather, those two things should happen, right? As we go deeper into God's glory, into God's holiness, into God's righteousness, that helps us see just how much he loves us and, and that he made a way for us who are sinful and fallen and broken to in fact be with him. And, and that's an offer that goes to anyone, right? That's a promise that extends to anyone. No one is beyond that hope. No one is beyond that grace. So every single Sunday, we wanna be a place where people come inside these doors, they experience, the love and the grace of Christ. And a close second, a close second is to know that one expression of God's love and grace in our life is that we are invited into the grand eternal work that he is doing in this world. It, we are invited into God's mission of redemption where he is mending the broken, finding the lost, rescuing the wayward and, and bringing uh, life uh, eternal life to the spiritually dead, right? It's, it's our, an invitation that we're given to find our place in God's ongoing mission in the world, pushing back against the kingdom of darkness and fully expressing the kingdom of God. So to that end, I have a question for you. At this point in your relationship to God, all right, at this point in your relationship to God, how do you see yourself joining in the redeeming work that God is doing in this world? At this point in your relationship with God, how do you envision your call to God's mission in the world? And so maybe for some of you, you're just focusing on the first half of that at this point in my relationship with the Lord. Because you might be here this morning saying, I don't know if I have one. That's why I'm here. I want to know more of who God is. I want to know more of his character, of his nature, of his attributes. Does he even want me to have a relationship with him? And so maybe you're focused in on the first half of that question. This morning, I hope and pray that you know that God loves you, that he does want that you to have that relationship with him, and that this morning could be the start of that and knowing the hope and healing that's found in him. But for you, maybe you're just focused in on that first part. It, it, what is the state of my relationship with, with, with the Lord? Still others of you, it might be focused in on the second. Like you, you've trusted in, in, in Christ, you know you have a relationship with him. And, and so now it's, how do I envision? How do I envision my, my call to God's mission in the world? How am I joining in the redeeming work that God is doing? Because I do believe this, if you're a Christian, you need to be able to answer that question. You need to be able to answer that question. How do I see myself joining in the redeeming work God is doing? I think just having an answer can be formative for your faith because it helps you know what type, of God, what type of person God is forming you to be to accomplish the work he has given you to do. At this point in your relationship to God, how do you see yourself joining in the redeeming work that God is doing in this world? I think there are a couple different reactions we can have to that. I think one of them can be, uh, David, that seems incredibly arrogant. Just seems really, really arrogant that you're like, I mean, he's God, he's got this, like, why me? Why do we need to be involved in this? Can he do this on his own? It just seems arrogant that we would be involved in that. I think on the other side of the coin, um, 
or it's, it's kind of a, maybe I don't know if it's a similar expression or not. There could be the we see all of our faults, we see uh, where we're lacking, and and we don't think we have anything we can bring into the mix. And so I mean, right? Like why 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 would I be involved in this? Why would God want me, or why would God give the invitation to me to be able to do this? And, and so that that could also be that reaction, really from a place of. Um, seeing everything that's all of our sin, all of our shortcomings, all, all of our failures. And yet still, there's another reaction that is, um, we, we know our hopes and dreams for our life. We have our, plan, our life plan, you know, whatever that looks like, whatever that entails for you. But if we stop and we af- actually ask, what does it look like for me to join in God's redeeming work, then for me to bring my life in line with this, I'm going to have to change some things. I'm going to have to maybe not do my life dream, maybe not have to do that and pursue this. And, and so then it becomes... Why me? Can't somebody else? Like, why, why does it have to be? Can't somebody else respond to this? Can't somebody else be brought into this work? And so that question, how do you see yourself joining in the redeeming work that God is doing in this world? It, 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 does, um, it does require us to look to ourselves to some degree, like, and so it, it, it does have parts where it's focused on ourselves in a sense of, uh, how am I gifted? What are my passions? Where has God placed me? How do I feel God calling me in this world? Like it, 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 all those discussions need to be had. And, and I think that's kind of where some of the why me's can, can raise itself up. But underlying that question, I think there's a fundamental principle, or really I, maybe another way of saying it is that question is built rather on a foundational promise that God gives to his people. And to see that promise, let's go to Judges chapter 6 for the call of Gideon. It's here where we're going to see Gideon, uh, see how God's calling him to join in, his, in the redeeming work that God is doing in the world. And we're going to see God make a promise to him that really uh, will enable and empower Gideon to step to the work that God is calling him to give. So Judges chapter 6, this is our second week in our series going through the book of Judges. Uh, and, and so uh, we've noticed there's a pattern of rebellion. Uh, we, we saw it last week and, and we're going to see it throughout this series. The Israelites sin. Uh, they, they rebel against God. He disciplines them by allowing foreign uh, people groups to come in to attack them, to kind of threaten their hold on the promised land. The Israelites cry out for mercy. They cry out for deliverance. The Lord hears their cry, and he sends a judge, or really think of it like a military leader, who, who helps uh, beat the oppressor, fight off the attacker, and helps deliver the people. And so that pattern is going to happen multiple times throughout the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, at this point in the story, it's the Midianites. The Midianites, they have invaded the land. They forced the Israelites into hiding. The Israelites, they've cried out to God, please help us, please save us, we're sorry, forgive us. And, and God hears their cry, and he calls out Judge, and he calls out Gideon to be the judge for Israel. But when we meet him, when we meet Gideon, he's not exactly demonstrating the type of bravery and courage we would expect from a military leader. There, there's almost like no courage in the face of adversity when we first meet him. Judges chapter 6, verse 11 is where we drop in. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, it might be a bit lost on us because I'm making this assumption that we're not quite familiar with the agricultural practices of thousands of years ago. <laughs> but, but so what's happening here is um, 
just to explain the setting, um, when someone typically threshed wheat, uh, they would do it up on top of a hill uh, because they need wind or breeze to be a part of that process. They would do it in a place that's very exposed to kind of because wind's involved. That's all the explanation I'm going to give you. Uh, Here with Gideon, he's not up on a hill. He's not somewhere where there's breeze. He's threshing in a wine press. It's almost like a cistern. You, You could really almost even think of a cave. And he's there because like all the other Israelites, he's gone underground. He's in hiding because of the Midianites. He doesn't want to be up on a hill. doesn't want to be exposed. doesn't want to be inviting the attack to himself. It doesn't want to be attracting attention. And, and so he's, he's hiding. You can almost say it's an expression of cowardice even. Um, it might be a stretch. Let's give him a little bit of grace. But I mean, there's, there's fear there. And he's, he's threshing wheat in the wine press. And it's why he's doing that. The angel walks up and says, greetings, mighty warrior. <laughs> like, there, there's some scholars that think there might be a little bit of snark there, you know, a little bit of sarcasm, like, oh, mighty warrior in the wine press. And so there, there's some that, that think it's that. And, and to be sure, you could kind of read it that way, and it's humored, it is, maybe it's humorous to do that. But I, I think more than anything, and this is where a lot of people land on it, that maybe the angel's being prophetic. Maybe the angel is, is helping Gideon see who he really is and what he's going to become. Right now, you're not acting brave. Right, 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 right now, you're not acting like a mighty warrior. Right now, you're acting like everybody else hiding. But this angel begins to help Gideon envision his calling. This angel begins to help Gideon see how he might join in the redeeming work God is doing on behalf of Israel when he, when he gives him this title of mighty warrior. But don't lose sight of what the angel says to him first. The Lord is with you mighty warrior. There's a promise. God is with you. God is with you. Now, I, I, I would think, like, if an angel, like, tells me God is with you, I'd be like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> like, let's go, let's make it happen. And, uh, but I, I say that, but I, like, if you see the track record in Scripture, that's not exactly the response from lots of servants of God, and it's not Gideon's. It's not Gideon's, because look at how he replies. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The angel says, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's like, I don't think he is. I don't think he is. There's, 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 like, that's nice. But I just don't think he is because with everything that's happened in my life, with everything that's happened to us, there's just no way God's with us. I've heard he's done some great things. He's done some amazing things for our ancestors. I've heard he's done some great things for other people. I'm so glad, happy that happened for this, but I just, I don't think God is with me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be threshing wheat in a wine press. You tell me he's with me and I just, I, I don't think he is. In, instead of recognizing Israel's sin, and how Israel was to blame for their current situation in this moment, Gideon is blaming the Lord for it. And he is not seeing how God is doing anything to help bring them. And basically he's accusing God of not being present, accusing God of not doing anything. To which God replies, oh yeah, well, I'm sending you. Look at verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Okay, what, what's happening to Gideon is a response that so many of us have. I've done this before. Maybe you've done this before too. But there's so many times where we see a problem. 
right? We see the brokenness in society around us. We see the brokenness maybe in our home or somewhere else. We, 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 see, we notice all the faults. We notice all the fractures. We notice everything that's off, and we blame God for it, saying you're not doing anything. You're detached. You're distant. You're removed. And, and, and what we see is there's no recognition. There's no recognition that, that maybe God is the one who's opening our eyes to see the problem. Maybe God is the one who's actually tuning our hearts to the suffering of others. There's no recognition that maybe God is the one who's burdening our soul with the issue and calling us to engage it. There's there, so many times when people point out all the faults, point out all the problems, they're actually looking at the place where God is calling them to join in the redeeming work that he is doing. They're looking at the place where they should envision their role in God's mission in the world. They're missing out that God is doing something in that moment, right? He's calling, he's positioning, he's placing his servants for the redeeming work that he wants them to do. They just simply have to say yes. That's what's happening here with Gideon. God's calling him, God's helping him to see this, and he says, go in the strength that you have. What strength does he have? He's just been told the Lord is with him. He can go in the strength of the Lord because the Lord is with him. He just has to say yes. He just has to say yes, but he's slow on the uptake. And just like we do, I've done this before, again, maybe you've done this, like he begins to list out all his personal limitations. He begins to list out about why me and why it shouldn't be me. Look at verse 15. Pardon me, my Lord, but pardon me. Like it's, it's like being polite in his disrespect. <laughs> it's like, pardon me. Uh, I, I, I was funny, thank you. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Okay, so Manasseh was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, or kind of one of the 12 land allotments. And he's saying, I'm, I'm from the smallest family in my tribe. And he, he's the youngest in his family. And so it's, it's him listing out all, all the self-criticisms. He's listing out all, all the self-criticisms. He's listing out all the reasons why he shouldn't be the one, why he can't be the one. But it, while he's putting himself down, really why he's putting his family down, he overlooks and speaks nothing to the strengths that he does have. Later on in the text, or, or I'll say this, verse 15 makes you think like that he doesn't have anything at his disposal. But later on in the text, there are indications that Gideon actually comes from a family of wealth, a family of influence, and, and a family of power. And yet here, he does not acknowledge any of it. He doesn't bring up any of those points. Why? Same reason you and I, same, re, same reason you and I oftentimes don't own up to whatever gifts, strengths, or resources we might possess. Because, hey, if we acknowledge them, we're on the hook for them. If we acknowledge them, we're, we're on the hook for them, right? If we, we've seen the issue, and then if we realize we might have some, no matter how big or how small, we might have some capacity to address it, then, then we'd feel responsible. And so we got no, we can't do that. We can't feel that, right? So we have to downplay, we have to self-criticize, we have to self-critique, we have to minimize any strength, any influence, any power we might have, and, and any agency we might have. And it masquerades as false humility all the time, but we, we would try to downplay it because if we, if we own it, then we're gonna feel a sense of calling, a sense of responsibility. So we just gotta list out all the self-critiques, all the self-criticisms because we just, if I own this, then I might feel the call here. And I, I know I, I said some dirty words in church in there, right? Money, power, esteem. Like I, you say those words in a church setting, it just seems like there should be the punchline of all the sin examples. And so they're, they're like, they're almost the dirty words for us. But look, those are just things, right? Money, power, esteem, influence. Those are just things. And we've talked about them before. They can be leveraged well, and they can be leveraged poorly. 
And we've seen so many expressions where they've been used improperly. We see the carnage that that happens, but come on. When they are leveraged well, man, wrongs are made right, broken pieces mend, and good is put back into this world. Here Gideon, he's not acknowledging any of the strengths that he has personally and his biggest omission. And really the crux of the whole story is that he wouldn't acknowledge the strength of God's presence in his life. To which God replies once again with a promise of his presence. Look at verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. God says, I'm with you. I'm with you and you will have complete and total victory. I'm calling you. I'm commanding you. I'm sending you to do this. I've heard Israel's cry. I'm calling you as judge to be the one. And you're going to have victory. Not because of your family, not because of your background, not because of your strength, but because I am with you. And God gives him another promise of his presence. But again, just like we are, Gideon is just like we are. He's unsure of God's promise in his life. He's unsure about this promise of presence. So he asks the Lord for a sign, and the Lord graciously gives him one by consuming this, uh, miraculously consuming a sacrifice or an offering that Gideon had put before the Lord. And after seeing that miracle, after seeing that sign, Gideon does uh, slowly begin to get to work. Um, the first thing he does, I think, does take a bit of courage for him because he, uh, the first thing he does is he pulls down an altar that was built to one of these false gods, but the altar was built by his father. The altar was built by his own family. And so that does let you know that, it's, that his, family, his family has a sense of means, sense of influence, sense of power to be able to do that such, such a thing. But that's the first thing that he does. So he's righting a wrong, and he's putting all of Israel on notice, hey, this isn't going to happen anymore. We have, to, we have to turn from our false idols, turn back to the one true God. And so he, he makes that, uh, he takes that action. But even after that small victory, he's still not sure about his role in God's mission for Israel. He doesn't know if he's really the one to do this or not. And so if they're really going to be successful. So Gideon asked the Lord for another sign. And in Judges 6, 36 through 40, you can read this. Uh, we you have the story of Gideon and the wolf lease. Um, so Gideon goes to a proper threshing floor, one that's up on a hill this time. And uh, he takes a wolf lease and he puts it out on the threshing floor. And he says, God, I'll know you're with me if when the morning dew falls... Only the, the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. And, and he wakes up the next morning, sure enough, just the, just the wool is wet and the ground is dry. But then Gideon, still unsure, says, okay, God, I want you to do it again just in reverse. Then I'll know you're with me, that, that the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. And sure enough, God does the miracle both times. He knows and he sees that God is with him, uh, that God's promise is going to be fulfilled. Now, I have to say it at this point, because some of you might be like, okay, I can test God with a wolf fleece, right? Like, when you read this, it's like, okay, if Gideon did it, I can do it too. And, and like, I mean, but no, okay, that's not the takeaway here. And I know we do that. Like, I remember being in college and like, okay, if the girl comes out at 9 a.m., that's my sign to ask her out, right? Like, that's going to be the test. And, uh, and, and thankfully it wasn't, because I'm not able. And so, like, you know, but like, we have those, you know, whatever fleece tests we put in front of the Lord. And that's just... It's, it's, it's not what we're supposed to do. In fact, Gideon even knows he's doing wrong. If you read the text after the first one, when he goes back to ask for the second, he says, don't be angry with me. Don't be angry with me, God, but I'm gonna ask again. He knows it's an expression of doubt. He knows it's an expression of unbelief, but he's, he still was wrestling with it. So he put it before the Lord and Lord graciously answered him. Again, our takeaway is not, hey, I can do, my flea, I can do a fleece test, but it's, it's, hey, no, let's learn from Gideon and trust God the first time to help us get on with the work faster. Eventually, after this 
So this is the third sign, one consuming of the sacrifice, two tests with the fleece. After the third sign, Gideon's like, all right, let's get on with it. And so he gets the task of, of uh, delivering the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites. So he needs an army. In Judges chapter 7, we see the Midianites have an army that's so large, it's described as uh, being like locusts. Uh, uh, camels without number, and the men are like sands on the seashore, all right? So massive armies. Some, uh, some uh, scholars have it north of 100,000 men have gathered uh, for battle. Gideon amasses an army, but it's 32,000. So not small, but, but nowhere near the odds that you want, 32,000 versus 100,000 or whatever. But yet God looks at Gideon and says, that's too big. That's too big. In fact, why don't you tell all the men who are scared they can go home? Just like that, down to 10,000. I'm impressed there are 10,000 that stayed, (laughs) but yet there's 10,000 there. And God says, nope, still too big. Shrink it one more time. He gives them another way to reduce the number, and it's reduced all the way down to 300 men. 300 men versus thousands upon thousands. So the stage is set to where there's going to be no doubt that it's the power and the presence of God in and with Israel that's delivering the Israelites out from under the hands of the Midianites. Like, no doubt that this is all glory to God when they win the day. Now Gideon, he's been fearful the entire time, and and now this is three signs into it, he's still fearful, but God gives him one more. He allows Gideon to hear from one of the Midianite soldiers that they are fearful, that they will uh, be defeated at the hands of Israel. And when Gideon hears this, he knows, he knows we've won. God is with us. He comes back, assembles his 300 men, gives them three things, a torch, uh, a, a trumpet or a horn, and a clay pot or a, a jar. And the plan was, was they would light the torches, but they would put them under the jar to kind of hide the light. And then they would spread out. And then on Gideon's signal, they would all smash the jar, blow the horn, and yell for the Lord and for Gideon. And it's a brilliant plan because when it happens, all the torches light up the night and, and the Midianites don't know that it's just one torch for one man. Like it have been one torch for a thousand. And so they don't know the size of the army that's coming to attack them and instantly fear grips them. But then God introduces even more chaos, even more confusion into it to where the Midianites begin to turn on one another, put each other to the sword. And when the Israelites see it, they know now's our chance. They attack, they drive the Midianites out of the land and God fulfills his promise to Gideon to use him to deliver the Israelite people. A promise made to a man who was threshing wheat in a wine press because he was afraid. A promise made to a man who initially responded to the call of God with why me? But this is how God works. And it is the hope of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, the apostle Paul is writing to the church he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what God does. He calls us out of the wine press. 
He calls us out of our places of weakness, out of our hiding, out of our shame, out of our longing, out of our loneliness. He calls us out of our brokenness and puts us into his work, brings us into his eternal plan. He calls us out of all those places of brokenness and promises us to us forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. And the kicker of all kickers, he promises us his presence. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I am with you to the very ends of the age. He promises us the presence of his Holy Spirit to all those who trust in him, to all those who believe in him. It is a promise we can bank on. And then the cherry on top comes when he reminds us that with his presence, there's work to be done. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. You, know, like, you don't have to be a superhero to have a role to play in the kingdom of God, right? Like we don't all have to be Martin Luther King or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham or Spurgeon. We don't all have to, to be those to have a role to play. You have a role to play in the kingdom of God. You have a role to play in God's redemptive mission to the world. Why? Because he's promised to be with you and he's called you to it. You're called to join in God's redeeming work. Now, let, let me say this. You know, I listed off all those men, Martin Luther King, Graham, Spurgeon, Moody, and there's like a thousand more that I could ask, and so, uh, that I could list out. And, and uh, so we don't have to be those. But let me say this. All of those individuals probably had a Sunday school teacher, probably had a parent, probably had a coach, someone loving them, speaking truth in their life, counseling them along the ways. And, and all of those brothers and sisters in Christ joining in the redeeming work that we see manifested in all of them, right? You're called to join in the redeeming work. And I know, I know, I know it's scary and I know it's fearful and I, and I know it's, it's inconvenient. And you might still be thinking like, what do I have to give here, right? Like if I'm pouring into somebody else's life, there's no way that I can fill them up. I've heard it said before, right? It's, it's not our job to fill someone else's cup. It's just our job to empty ours. All right, so, so whatever grace you've been given, whatever knowledge of Christ you have, whatever experience you've had with the hope of the gospel, however you've seen that lift or restore or bless or mend, you can empty your cup into someone else's. That's all we're called to do. And it's a way that we join into the redeeming work that God is doing. I know, again, it's scary, it's fearful, it's inconvenient, but I'm telling you, it is life-giving, it is purpose-giving, and it's a way that you discover life, that you discover the life that you were created and called to do when you take your place in the redeeming work that God is doing in this world. Again, the pushback, another pushback might be, well, David Gideon had four signs. If I could have like one, I would be down, right? Like if I could, you know, one or, or two, I would be good to go. He got four. Like, can I, can I get a sign of God's promise in my life? Again, that's what we have with the gospel. It's what we have with the gospel, right? Think of what you are when you were called right? We, 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 were, we were sinners. We were flawed. We were rebellious against God. Let me say this. Some of you, that's you right now. That's not past tense for you. Some of you in this room, that is your current state. You are rebellious against God. You are willfully staying in your sin. Yet scripture tells us God loves us while we're willfully staying in our sin, right? God loves us while we're still sinners. God loves us there. He loves us enough to send Christ, who's also known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Christ, God with us, comes to this earth, becomes a sacrifice for our sins so that we can have our sins 
forgiven so that we can be with God, so that we can be made whole, so that we can be brought into the family of God. So what we have on the cross becomes our sign and the symbol of God's presence in our life because it tells us there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Cross, empty tomb, those are signs of God's presence in our life, signs of promises fulfilled, that he is here here that he is with us that he's made a way for us to be with him and i am convinced i'm convinced that if we if we grasp maybe not like not even how much like if we grasp maybe just like five percent okay maybe just five percent of how much we are loved by god right and if, if we if we grasp how often he chooses the weak to shame the strong and if we grasp that all of it is fundamentally and foundationally dependent upon God's presence in our life then when we begin to picture how we might join in the redeeming work of God our response is not why me but our response is why not me and it's not spoken from a place of, of arrogance it's not spoken from a place of pride it's spoken from a place of humility and a, and a place of trust that God is with me, called me, placed me to be about this work. Why not you? Why not you? Why not you? Why not you be the one to start the revival in the home? Why not you be the one to take the first steps towards healing in your marriage? Why not you be the one to start the ministry? Why not you be the one to plant the church? Why not you be the one to coach the team, befriend the parents, and speak the hope of the gospel into those kids? Why not you be the one? Why not, why not you be the one to, to, to pour out in the community? Why not you be the one to help the homeless find a meal? Why not you be the one to write the legislation that uplifts the neighbor? Why not you be the one to take on signs of hate and racism across our state? Why not you be the one to launch the financial literacy program? Why not you be the one to pour into the college student? Why not you be the one to start the ministry? Why not you be the one to fill in the blank however God might be prompting you to fill in the blank? But why not you be the one to find tangible expressions of the hope of the kingdom of God. Why not you? You see, God is still in the business. He is still in the business of calling the weak, the flawed, and the busted up to be a part of the grand eternal work that he is doing. And I am so very grateful that he is. So very grateful that he is. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that God is calling many of you to him and to his work this very morning. For some of you, for some of you, it's trusting in that love for the very first time today. It's trusting in that love for the very first time. And I pray that you do it and begin that relationship with him and allow the healing and restorative process to begin in your own heart and in your own soul. And still others, you've trusted in him. You, you responded to his call to salvation. No, he is still calling you. You've trusted in his love. You've experienced that love. Now get on with it. Now get on with it and join in the redeeming work that he is doing. Why? Because God is with you. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for Gideon. We thank you for all the examples in scripture of men and women who were busted up and jacked up and just sinful in so many different ways, shameful in so many different ways. But God, you spoke, you redeemed, you restored, and you chose them put them into work and to set the stage to where you and you alone get glory throughout it all. 
And God, I pray that we would see all the different expressions of your love and grace in that to restore us, to use us, to let us be a part of this grand eternal work that you are doing. And so God, I pray for wisdom for the people in this room. I pray that they wouldn't make this too intangible or too vague, but I pray that tomorrow morning when they walk into their classroom, when they walk into their office, when they walk into their kitchen, God, I pray that they would go in with eyes wide open to the eternal work that you're doing in the hearts and lives of the people that you have surrounded them with. So that, God, you can help them see the occasion to join in the redeeming work that you're doing in the lives of the people that you've placed around them. God, help us, help us, help us respond to you in such a way that when you call, it's, it's why not us, not off of pride, not off of arrogance, but off of a quiet strength that we have, that you are faithful to your promises of your presence and of the empowering nature of your Holy Spirit. God, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. At the end of our services, we do uh, have a time where we come to, you could say, maybe one sign of the presence of God in our life because we have the ordinance of communion. And it calls us back to the cross. It calls us back to where God fulfilled his promise to provide a sacrifice. The bread that you see before you and the cup and the juice represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that, that he gave for us as he made that sacrifice for our sins. And so at Grace City, how we observe communion is in a moment, I'll read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, which is one place where this practice is given to the church. And then I'll open up this time with a, with a word of prayer. And I would encourage you, you can pray silently, you can confess your, you can confess your sin, express your gratitude to Christ. But if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we did a series on communion. We talked about how communion can also remind us of our charge to be on God's mission. And that's what I'm going to ask you to pray about today. As you, as you prepare yourself to come forward for communion, that you would be mindful of the sacrifice that Christ has made and perhaps mindful of the work that he is calling you to. To let yourself be, your soul be nurtured by the sacrifice of Christ and your sense of energy and passion to do his work um, be fueled by the love that he has displayed to us in and through his sacrifice. So you voice your prayer, you can uh, pray silently where you are, then come forward, take the bread, dip in the juice, and you can return to your seat there. Let me say this, if, if you're here and you're wondering about beginning a relationship with Christ, uh, this is for those that, that know that they've started in that relationship with him. So if you're not sure, give this time to those who have, but know this, we want you to be sure that you can start in that relationship with Christ. There'll be men and women down front that would love to talk with you, love to pray with you, and perhaps help you take that step of faith this morning. And then as always, church, this can also be an altar. It can also be a way that you can come toward, pray over maybe the calling that you might be sensing God leading you towards, pray over taking that step of giving him your yes and joining in the work that he is doing. Because communion is a time for all of us to respond. Responding by coming to the table, responding with steps of faith, or responding in prayer. So if you will, church, let's stand. I'll read the text and you respond as God leads. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord God, we thank you for the ordinance of communion and how it calls us back to a place of your faithfulness, calls us back to a place of your presence, where you are present with us in our sin so that we could be present with you in your holiness and righteousness. And so God, help us, help us worship you in and through this act this morning. God, help us be mindful of the grace you have given and the work you've called us to. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray.